Let me uh, pray for us this morning. I thank you, Father, that all over the world, believers in Jesus Christ on this day are gathered in homes, in huts, um, on military bases, in chapels, in huge churches, in small churches, to worship Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. Lord, in other time zones, uh, those, many of those folks have already done this, and we rejoice in that. We thank you that we're part of a worldwide body of believers who love you. We pray for our friends, our partners in Makono, Lord, and we pray that your continued blessing upon them, they would continue to love Jesus Christ evermore. And speak to us today, Lord, as we've come together here. We need to hear from you. We need the hope that only you can bring to us through the ministry of your spirit, through your word. Speak to us today. Encourage us in yourself. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as a church, we've been in a study of one book of the Bible forever, it seems like, First uh, Corinthians, for over a year. And it just so happens, irony of ironies, that here on this Easter weekend, we find ourselves in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, probably the most detailed chapter in the entire Bible on the topic of resurrection. And so if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and you can follow along with us. There's also a study outline, like a study guide inside your worship folder that you might want to pull out, and you can take some notes there if you'd like. I imagine that sometime in your life, you have probably wondered what happens to human beings after they die. Maybe you've wondered, is it like video games? You know, where after you get obliterated by your enemy, you just get another life? Is it uh, like this? Do you get a, do you get a do-over if you kind of messed up the first time? Do you get to do it again? Maybe you've wondered in your life if perhaps the Eastern religions are on to something when they express the notion of reincarnation, kind of this endless recycling process where you keep coming back in different forms. Or maybe you've wondered, does everything just kind of fade to black when you pass on? You know, game over, and that's it. Well, when it comes to this question of what happens to people after they die, we need to look at what the Bible says. And you need to know, if you're a guest with us today, that that we regard this book very, very highly. We believe it's the Word of God. We believe it tells us truth about ourselves and about God, and yes, about the afterlife. And we need to understand that the Bible does not teach that humans get a do-over if they mess up the first time. It does not teach reincarnation and karma. It does not teach annihilation. It does not teach soul sleep. What the Bible does teach is resurrection, And it teaches it very clearly, and and more specifically, resurrection of the body into a new kind of existence. Scriptures tell us in many places there's coming a day when those who have died will be raised to live again in bodily form. I use the passive term, be raised, be raised, because this is not something we will do to ourselves. This is something that will be done to us. God, our creator, will raise us bodily from the dead one day. If you were here earlier in this series, we saw this uh, very clearly in this same chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 15. It reads like this. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. That's an interesting term that means the first of many. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We will all be raised. Romans 8, 11 says it this way, a little bit differently. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's resurrection. So the bottom line is this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees your resurrection. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like that. God proved his ability to raise people from the dead by raising his own son, Jesus, from the dead. Amen? Amen. (laughs) On Good Friday, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ purchased this for us on the cross, but Easter Sunday guaranteed it. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. But you know, when you think about that, it raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Resurrection? I'm sure the people who first heard that had a lot of questions. And in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that we're going to be looking at today, the Apostle Paul, the writer, anticipates some of those questions that his readers would have after hearing about the future resurrection of their bodies. And he addresses those questions. So let's take a look. Beginning in verse 35... 1 Corinthians 15, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Now, those are some fair questions, right? How in the world is this going to happen? What kind of bodies will people have when they're raised out of the grave? Now, as we're going to see, Paul Paul wasn't um, answering these questions to someone who was asking them as a sincere, honest seeker. But he was, he was answering them to people who were skeptics, who were scoffers. People who doubted that the resurrection of the body was even possible. It's as if they were saying this. How can this really even happen, Paul? The bodies of dead people decompose over time. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Are you really telling us that decomposed remains can somehow be reconstituted and reformed into a body again? You can't be serious. What about people who were lost at sea? What about people who died in a fire? What about, in those days, people who died because they were torn limb from limb by wild animals? In our day, we might ask, what about people who have been cremated, whose remains are in an urn somewhere or were scattered uh, across the ocean? And so in answer to those questions, Paul gives four responses. Number one, he's going to contend that resurrection should not really be a strange or a new concept to people, that it's happening all around us all the time. Second, that the resurrection bodies that we will receive will be uniquely different from our current bodies. They'll be different. Third, that they'll be better than our current bodies. Amen. And fourth, that there is a prototype of the resurrection body that gives us even more clues as to what its exact nature will be. So let's, 
look at these one at a time. Number one, Paul contends that resurrection should not really be a strange or new concept to people, that it's happening all the time all around us. Verse 36, you foolish person. That lets us know he's talking to people that were, should have known better, should have understand these, understood these things. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Not talking about sowing a garment, but sowing seed, planting seed. Obviously, Paul's harsh tone and strong language, you foolish person, lets us know he's talking to people that he felt should have known better, should have understood this. He wouldn't have used that tone with an honest, seeking person. But in effect, he's saying this. So you think that resurrection is impossible, do you? Well, look, just look around you. Consider what you see every day in the natural world. Death and resurrection is happening all around you all the time. And he uses an analogy from agriculture, doesn't he, to make his point. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What's he saying? He's saying the the unending cycle of planting and harvesting shows that the principle of death and resurrection is woven into the very fabric of creation. The fact that God promises to raise our bodies from the grave someday shouldn't sound far-fetched considering that death regularly produces life all around us in nature every day. Farmers plant seeds in the ground. Those seeds die. They decompose into the earth. But as this happened, the life force within the seed somehow mysteriously produces new life in a new form that pushes its way up through the soil and emerges on the surface and grows, and it becomes a crop that can be harvested. And this cycle of death, burial, and resurrection repeats itself a gazillion times every day all over the earth. So it's not really a strange or new concept that's difficult to comprehend or believe. That's his point. And then he uses the same seed analogy to teach a second truth about our resurrection bodies, and that is, that our bodies are raised, our resurrection bodies will be different, uniquely different from our current bodies. You say, how so? I'd like to know about that. Well, different in several ways. They'll be different in form. They'll look different. They'll be different in appearance. Notice verse 37. And what you sow, what you plant into the ground, is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, I hold in my hands a melon. How many of you like melons, by the way? I love melons. had some this morning. And uh, by the way, I'm becoming a fan of fruit smoothies. Any of you like fruit smoothies? I've been starting to make my own, you know, and it's fun to kind of experiment with different combinations of different fruits and yogurts and other stuff and just throw it in there and see what kind of a concoction you can come up with. My wife has even had to admit that I make a mean fruit smoothie. I think I just want to stay healthy for a long time and postpone needing that resurrection body that we're talking about, but we'll see. We'll see how that works for me. Here's Paul's point. What gets planted in the ground is a little seed. What comes up out of the ground is something that looks quite a bit different. Now, some of you are saying, are you telling me that my resurrection body is going to look like a plump, fat, juicy melon? 
No. That's not his exact point. But his point is that it's going to look different. It goes into the ground in one form and comes up raised in a different form. That is his point. And that's the point he's going to be making all throughout this passage. It's going to be different. It's going to look different. It's going to appear different. And some of you are saying, praise God, I'm so ready for a different body. My current body is starting to look saggy and baggy. And I think I'm suffering from chest of drawers syndrome. You know what that is when your chest slides down into your drawers. <laughs> some of you are saying, I need a new body. I've got bunions and bifocals and hernias and hemorrhoids. Bring on the new body, please. And I'm telling you, it's coming. It's coming. Be patient. You have to die first. You have to be planted in the ground like the seed. And then one day God will raise your body and it'll be new. And it'll be different from your current body in many respects. So be patient, okay? It's coming. It's coming. It's going to be different in form, appearance. It's also going to be different in flesh. Verse 39, for not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Obviously, the term flesh here refers to skin, skin covering, epidermis. And in creation, Paul acknowledges we find different kinds of living things have been given their own unique skin coverings, whether it's animals or birds or fish. By the way, when we were in Africa, we did not get a chance to go on a safari, but one day we had lunch in a fancy restaurant and the safari came to us. And it was so cool. We, you know, the food arrived, and all of a sudden the monkeys came out, of the, came out of the woods, you know, and there's monkeys all around, and these unique exotic birds showed up. And then this little, no, this big locust-like thing came and landed right behind Nikki on, on behind her chair. And so it's like, hey, cool, we get to take a safari without driving five hours to go see it. But anyway, that has nothing to do with this. Different creatures have different kinds of skin. God's given them that. And our new resurrection bodies will have a unique skin covering as well. Hmm. We'll see in a moment that the capabilities of that new body will enable us to travel in different ways than we currently travel from place to place. Suffice it to say, you won't need a car. You won't need a vehicle to get where you want to go when you are in your resurrection body. And that's going to require a different composition of our bodies including a different kind of flesh, a kind that we've never seen yet. So they're going to be different, different in form, different in flesh, and then in a very unique way, different in glory, Paul says, verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. Maybe you're thinking that your body's already kind of heavenly, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the celestial bodies in the sky. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory, which powerful new telescopes have confirmed, different colors. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Now, I think one reason Paul brings this up is to say to his skeptics, hey, guys, the God who created everything you see in the heavens and in nature, if he was able to do that, created out of nothing by simply speaking the word, don't imagine that it's going to be too difficult for him to recompose bodies out of dust. 
He can do whatever he sets his mind to do. But I think he's also stating that that there's going to be a unique feature of the resurrection body, and that is its ability to reflect the glory of God, to manifest his glory in a visible, unique, spectacular way. You may have never thought of this in this way, but listen to a prophetic message recorded in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Speaking of the future resurrection, Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, talking about those who have died, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Jesus reiterated this in Matthew 13. In our resurrection bodies, they will have the the unique ability to manifest the glory of God in dazzling, bright, brilliant light. That's going to be wild stuff. Some people will be awakened in a future resurrection to shine like stars, radiant, Reflecting the glory of God, much like the moon reflects the glory of the sun. I think he's talking literally. Now, some people want to shine all right, but they want to shine here and now. They want glory now, and they set out to make a name for themselves in this life. But Daniel says, you know what? The truly wise people are going to live their lives in such a way now that they shine in the next life. And they manifest the glory of God. So often what is valued here in this life is wealth, riches, money, status, fame. But I want to look you in the eye and tell you that what's valued in the next life is glory. The ability, the capacity to radiate the dazzling brilliance of the glory of our creator. That's why Paul wrote in another place, What we're going through now doesn't compare with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So our future resurrection bodies are going to be markedly different from our current bodies. Amen. Hallelujah. But not just different. Number three, better. Better in many ways. Certainly they will be better in many ways than our current bodies. Thank God for this. Middle of verse 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. That's an interesting term. If there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual body. So here it is, so cool. Your resurrection body is going to be better in many different ways than your current body. Praise God for that, so will mine. And maybe you say, well, well what's wrong with my current body? I like my body the way that it is. And certainly there is value in being content with our bodies that God has given us here and now. That's a good thing in that sense. But from a theological perspective, our bodies as they are, are not fit for existence in the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that? The way our bodies are right now, they're tainted with sin, they decay, they're not fit for eternal existence in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the Bible is very clear that three things need to happen to an individual for them to be fit for that kind of existence. Do you know what they are? Your spirit needs to be reborn. 
Your mind needs to be renewed and your body needs to be recreated. Let me say that again. To be fit for existence in the kingdom of heaven, our spirits need to be reborn, born again. Our minds need to be renewed. We need the mind of Christ. And our bodies need to be recreated, refashioned, reformed for a whole new kind of existence in the kingdom of heaven. Because that's what's coming for believers in Christ. God has made provision through the gospel to recreate our bodies so they will be fit for what's coming next. This is one of thousands of gospel gifts that God gives to his people. Paul here in this section says our new bodies will be imperishable. What does that mean? Someone last night said, not perishable. I'm like, thanks. (laughs) They will endure. They'll last forever, our new bodies will, our resurrection bodies. They won't wear out. They won't go bad. They won't get injured. They won't break down. On Friday, for Stations of the Cross here, which was a wonderful time of celebrating Christ's death and suffering for us, I... Our family was right out here in the lobby and one of our dear ladies was coming in and she was on a walker. She's walking in with a walker and she said, yeah, I just had one knee replaced. And she said, I really need to get the other knee replaced and then a hip replaced. And I thought, sister, someday you're going to be able to take that walker and heave it because you're not going to need knees replaced. You're not going to need hips replaced anymore. Your new resurrection body is going to last forever. It's not going to break down. It's not going to need replacing. Those bodies won't get sick. They won't be subject to disease. They won't decay or die. There's coming when the true children of God will never get another bad medical report. Never again. Cancer will only be a distant memory. Heart disease and lung disease will be a thing from a bygone era, praise God. We have our new resurrection bodies. AIDS won't exist. Malaria and other ravaging diseases that are wiping out so many around the globe will be gone forever, totally eradicated. Wheelchair manufacturers will go bankrupt. They'll be defunct. There won't be a need for those. You won't need reading glasses anymore, thank God, because you'll see more clearly than you've ever seen in your life. You'll have a full head of glorious hair. It won't continue to fall out and wash down the drain in the shower like it's doing now. No more comb-overs, praise God. (laughs) Doctors and nurses and hospitals and physical trainers and rehab specialists and nutritionists and chiropractors won't be needed when we have our resurrection bodies. They're wonderful to have here and now, amen? We're glad for all of them here and now, but in the next life, they won't have any customers. Demand for painkillers and antibiotics and treatment drugs will be zero, so pharmaceutical companies won't be needed. And thank God, Cialis commercials will finally be a thing of the past. (laughs) Done with them forever. You won't get the flu anymore. You won't suffer from asthma anymore. You won't wake up with those nagging migraine headaches anymore. Not with your resurrection body, you won't. Praise God. They will be completely healthy and disease-free and ageless. You won't get older. You won't have the appearance of age. Some people say, well, how old will these resurrection bodies be? We don't know for sure. We're not told. Some people say they'll be 33 because Jesus was 33 when he surrendered his natural body to the tomb. But the Bible doesn't necessarily say that. Other people think, no, we'll be like children because doesn't the Bible say of such is the kingdom of heaven? 
Maybe we'll all be like children. We don't know for sure. But we know there's a great and glorious promise that we will have resurrection bodies that will not age, will not get old, will not have wrinkles. You won't have to do any more tucks and those kinds of things, stretches. And they will be whole. No more handicaps. No more impairments. My wife will be able to shed her prosthetic leg. She'll have two legs and she'll be dancing in the streets of the new Jerusalem, praising and leaping and jumping and worshiping God. I want to see that. I want to see that. Our new resurrection bodies will be imperishable. Sound pretty good? It'll also, he says, be glorious. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. As we've said, your resurrection body that you'll receive one day will have the capacity to manifest the glory of God in a way that will be stunning. And people who see you will know immediately how precious Jesus Christ is to you. It will show. John MacArthur wrote this, In heaven we will radiate like the sun in the blazing and magnificent glory which the Lord will graciously share with those who are his. Imperishable, glorious. Then it says powerful, sown in weakness, raised in power. Yeah, when you get your resurrection body, you'll be doing things that you can only dream about doing in this life. Like dunking a basketball. Maybe you've never done that in this life. You'll be able to do that when you have your resurrection body. Run a marathon. By the way, I think we have hardwired into us a longing to have a perfect and powerful body. Don't you? I think it's in all of us. Isn't that why we invent superheroes who can only do the exploits or who can do the exploits that we can only dream about? Our comic strip characters, our movie heroes have superhuman bodies that don't get hurt, don't get injured, that have special powers that we all yearn for. Our stories are full of these ordinary people who get transformed into larger-than-life superheroes. Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent, whoever transformed into Bionic Woman. I don't remember who that was. Linda Carter, was that who that was? Anyway. David Banner, remember him? Superheroes who could leap tall buildings, fly through the air, deflect projectiles that were coming at them, and fling webbing out of their wrists and lift up cars. When I was a teenager, my buddy John and I never missed an episode of The Incredible Hulk. Came out right about then, late 70s. Every Thursday, whenever it was on Thursday night, he'd make sure he was at my house to watch another episode of The Incredible Hulk. Remember David Banner? This very ordinary looking guy who stayed that way until some injustice in the world fired him up and his eyes would get all weird and his shirt would start to rip apart at the seams and he would be transformed into this huge green hulk with huge muscles, huge arms, a monstrous chest. His hair wasn't very cool, but other than that, he was a really cool-looking superhero. My buddy and I would make sure we watched that happen every week. Something in us wanted to be that guy who could pick up a car or throw a piano through a window, save the 
beautiful young maiden from distress. We wanted his body. Yeah. Do you know what? Never once did we see an episode where the Hulk, you know, would pick up a car or something like that and go, oh, I threw my back out. Oh, man. Oh, I need to go to the chiropractor. You know, Hulk need chiropractor. You know, not once was that ever written into the script. Not one time. Why? Because we want our superheroes strong, fierce, and not subject to injury like us mere mortals. It's in us, isn't it? I think we yearn for a perfect and powerful body. And I think it's in us because I think God put it in us to give us one more reason to yearn for the coming of Jesus Christ and the new creation that he will bring. Our bodies will be powerful in amazing ways and glorious and imperishable. And then he uses this curious term, spiritual. Your resurrection body will be a spiritual body, which sounds really weird. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Spiritual body? How does that work? It's something we haven't encountered in this life, so we don't totally know what it is. One scholar describes it this way. It's a body that can accommodate the spiritual realm. We're going to have a body in which our thoughts and the projections of our thoughts are accommodated by our capacities. So you're going to say to yourself, I wish I was there and be there like that. A spiritual body. Raises a good question, has such a body ever existed? And the answer is yes. And that brings us to Paul's last point. There is a prototype of the resurrection body. It gives us a lot of clues as to what this body is going to be like. Look at verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So there's a sequence here. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of, of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So you want to get a clearer picture of what the resurrection body will be like, what a spiritual body is? Look no further than the resurrection body of Jesus the man of heaven. Didn't he say, I came down from heaven? Jesus, the last Adam, who, like the first Adam, stood in that place of being the representative for all of humanity. Jesus was raised from the dead that first Easter morning with a transformed body, a spiritual body. It was similar in some ways to the body that he had worn for 33 years on this earth, but it was also substantially different. And this week I read through all the New Testament passages that describe Jesus after his resurrection. He was, out, he was here for another 40 days after he came out of the tomb and had a lot of interactions with a lot of people. I noticed several things in my reading about the resurrection body of Jesus. First, he was recognizable. Now sometimes when people first saw him, because he looked a little different, they They didn't recognize him, but then it says their eyes were open and they saw, that's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. They recognized him. That tells us that there's going to at least be some continuity between our current bodies and our future body. You will be recognized in heaven. You ever had this question? Will we know each other in heaven? 
In the kingdom of heaven, will we be able to, to recognize each other? Yes. Even as Jesus was able to be recognized. Interestingly, something carried over from his natural body to his spiritual body. Do you know what it was? His scars. Probably the only scars that will transfer over, carry over into the next life. But we will know each other. We will know, it says, even as we are known. His body was recognizable. It was also touchable. Uh, One time he appeared to some of his disciples and they said, is it it a ghost? He looks different. And here's what Jesus said, Luke 24. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So we will not be these disembodied spirits floating around the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. We will have substance. We'll be able to touch each other. Thank God we'll be able to hug in heaven. Isn't that good? There will be something there. There will be substance to these bodies. We'll be able to touch each other, hold hands, hug, clap. But ironically, we'll also be of such a composition that we'll be able to move uniquely through solid substances. Jesus was. He was uniquely mobile. It says on at least two occasions, Jesus suddenly appeared to his disciples in a room that was locked. And the author takes great pains to tell us the room was locked. He did not come in through the door. He just appeared. And then on one occasion, he just vanishes. He just disappears. And so these bodies will have this unique capacity to appear and vanish at will. Wherever you want to be, you'll be there. Wherever you don't want to be, you'll be gone. Amazing, these bodies. He could move through walls. He could move about from place to place without walking. And then I know many of you will be thrilled about this next one. He could eat. He was able to eat. Jesus enjoyed food in his resurrection body. Praise God that he did. It says that he ate what? Bread and he ate fish. There'll be good food, honey. There'll be good food. Not those nasty, nasty strained apricots that you're having to have now. Listen, I don't think Jesus needed to eat, but he could just eat for the pure enjoyment of eating. He didn't need to eat to regain his strength. He didn't need to eat because he had hunger pangs. He could just eat for the pure enjoyment of it and for the glory of God. Wouldn't it be great to just eat for the glory of God? Not put on all those extra pounds and all that kind of stuff. We'll be able to enjoy eating and do it in the joy of God. So Jesus' resurrection body is the actual prototype for all of our bodies that we will receive one day. We'll share many of the same properties that his new body had. I love Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Listen, but our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's going to do it. You're going to have a body one day like Jesus' resurrection body. Now listen. At this point, someone might ask this question. Okay, okay, but are all humans going to experience this resurrection of the body in exactly the same way? Are we all in the same boat? Is everyone 
going to experience what we just read about here in the Bible? Does that apply to all of humanity or only a select group? That's an important question, isn't it? It's so important that we should take a few moments on Easter to address it. Earlier in that Daniel passage, we saw a division among humanity, some who will be raised to shame and some who will be raised to shine. Jesus reiterated this in John 5, 28, when he said this. I think it's coming up on the screens. Yes, do not marvel at this. He had just healed somebody. And to the onlookers, he said, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. He's speaking in third person, but he's speaking about himself, his voice, my voice. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there you have it. There's your answer. All of humanity will be raised. Everyone. The book of Revelation confirms this. Jesus claimed there's coming a day when all dead bodies everywhere will somehow hear and respond to the voice of the Son of God calling to them and their decomposed and scattered remains will miraculously, mysteriously be reformed into a living being and then reunited with your spirit that never ceased to exist. That's the promise of Jesus, one of the gospel blessings. So in one sense, the answer to the question is yes, everyone will be raised. But do you see there will be a division? This is all throughout the Bible. All will be raised. All will be given a new body that will have a unique capacity to exist in the realm of whatever is next for them. But there will be a division. Some will be raised with new bodies that are fit to experience eternal life, and some will be raised with new bodies that are fit to experience eternal judgment. And what's the determining factor? What is the determining factor? What is it that determines whether someone is raised with that kind of a resurrection body unto life or unto judgment? What is it that is the determining factor if someone is in Adam or in Christ? Well, the Bible is also very clear that it's how every individual responds to a message that is called the gospel. That's the determining factor. How did you respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? At New Life Church, we talk a lot about the gospel, don't we? It's like this diamond, this beautiful, glorious diamond that we like to hold up and just marvel at it. The gospel is a great plan that God himself crafted to save sinful humanity from eternal judgment. God had to do it. We couldn't do it. God is holy and righteous. He created everything that you see for his own pleasure and glory, but humanity could not have failed more miserably to honor and glorify God than we have. Beginning with our first ancestors, Adam and Eve in the garden, who substituted themselves for God, rejected his authority, broke his commandments. And all of us from that point down to this present day, to you and to me and to my children, and we've all inherited this propensity to be self-absorbed, self-centered, to not want God running our lives. Isn't this true? This is true of all of humanity. Because God is holy and righteous, he cannot look the other way. He can't just go, 
all right, I'll grade on the curve. He must satisfy his own righteousness and holiness, and he did through the gospel. His great heart of love made a way for guilty sinners to be saved by sending his own son, Jesus, to come to this earth and wear skin. Man, if you had been walking down Nazareth's road that day and passed by Jesus, you would have thought, there's an ordinary-looking guy. It's before his resurrection body. And you would not have realized you just walked by the creator of the universe. And he came and he lived the life we could never live. He fulfilled the law perfectly, didn't he? He obeyed God's law perfectly. Not only did he not sin, but he pleased God in every way. He fulfilled the law and then he went to a cross and he took the punishment that all of us deserve for our many sins. God laid on him the iniquity of us all, it says. He laid our sin on Jesus and punished him in our place. So Jesus was our substitute our sacrifice, taking the just punishment of a holy God for us so that God could show his mercy and grace to repentant sinners. See, God's intent was always to display the full range of his attributes in his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, it says. Only angels and humans use their capacity to disobey against God. But now, through the gospel, men and women, boys and girls, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles can be saved, can be restored and reconciled and rescued by Jesus. This is the gospel of Christ. Some people say, well, I don't know, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm faithful to my spouse. I pay my taxes. I help old ladies across the street. Pastor Steve, I even go to church. I'm a good person. Isn't God going to be impressed by that? Did I really need someone to die for me? That's a good question. You know what? God's holiness is so much more than we really understand. It really is. You and I could never be good enough to earn his approval, to earn his favor, to earn a spot in heaven. That's why Jesus had to die for every single one of us. He was our substitute, that sacrificial lamb, that scapegoat who took our sins. And so we don't rely on our own good deeds, right? We don't rely on our own goodness. Even our righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags compared to God's righteousness. So we need something gifted to us, and salvation is a gift. Jesus said it this way. If you want to respond to what God has done in the gospel, he said, repent and believe the gospel. He didn't say try harder. He didn't say try to be a better person, pull pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He said, repent and believe the gospel. And hundreds of you have. Some of you as little children when you understood what Jesus did for you. Others of you as teenagers. Some of you as young adults. Some of you later on in life. Hundreds of you have. But not all of you have. And so on this Easter Sunday, I want to give you an opportunity, if you never have, to repent from your sins, to turn and believe the gospel and receive all the gifts of the gospel, which are immense, forgiveness of all your sins, the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to you, a new resurrection body someday, a home in heaven, fellowship with believers here and now, 
God's meaning and purpose and peace and joy in your life, these are all gifts of the gospel purchased for you by Jesus' death on the cross and secured and guaranteed by his resurrection. But you must repent and believe. Will you bow your heads with me? How many of you have? Would you lift your hands? I have. I've repented and believed the gospel. Steve, I'm saved. I'm sure of it. Many, many of you. Many, many of you. You can put your hands down. But not all of you. You know, there's only one sinner's prayer that I find in the New Testament. It goes like this. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. (laughs) With your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed all around this room. If you have never yet, to this point, responded to the gospel in this way, and you sense God calling you right now, you might not be able to put words to it, but there's this stirring inside of you. Yes, this is for you. You need this. Would you just whisper that sinner's prayer to God right now? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's you today. God is calling you and you're responding in that way to Jesus in repentance and faith. Would you just look up at me over here on my right? Just look up at me, catch my eye. I'd like to know that. Amen. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Beautiful. Anybody else on my right over here in the back? Yep. Amen. How about this center section here? Anybody? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I prayed that. That's where I'm at. Yeah. Amen. Anybody else? Yes. Yes. Some men, some women. How about over here on my left? Anybody over here? Yes. Amen. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yes, I see the couple in the back. Any others? About on my far left, yes. Yep. Amen. Anybody else over here? Yeah. Yeah, amen. Lord Jesus, we worship you today on this Easter. We're so grateful that you went to the cross in our place. We could never have paid the price ourselves, but you paid it for us. And we are so grateful that you were raised from the dead, that the Father was satisfied with your payment, that it was enough, it was sufficient to pay for my many sins and all of our sins. We worship you today. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that many of these folks sitting in this room here today who have never before repented and believed, I pray that you've given them the faith to believe today to be saved, to become a true child of God. In so doing, would you give them all the wonderful gifts of the gospel that you have purchased and guaranteed for them? We got to be honest, we do look forward to that resurrection body someday. These bodies are letting us down in this life. We're sick. Some are dying. Thank you for that promise, Lord. We rejoice in you. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.